Hey everyone, welcome to episode six of Created for Connection. Today we interview Scott Spicer, director of mobilization for East West, and also the regional group advisor for Pure Desire. Scott shares with us what it was like to be in ministry and feel like he had to live in the shadows and how the Lord brought his story to a place of redemption in a really beautiful way. We look forward to letting you listen in on this conversation and we hope that it's something that blesses you. I wanna also make sure to remind you to subscribe and share these episodes with people that you feel like could benefit from listening to them. Thank you so much and we want you to remember you are not alone. Welcome back to Created for Connection. I'm your host, Paul McMullen, and I'm here with Kevin Shelby. Hey, everybody. And uh, we're excited to be back. We're really excited about today. Uh, Kevin, how are you doing, man? Man, I'm doing great. Uh, life seems to be going good. We're, this is episode number six, and we're pushing 500 downloads, which I didn't think, I mean, obviously, what as I said in the beginning, I thought my mom was the only person that was going to listen to this, so... It's pretty cool that we've got people that are wanting to listen. And Paul, I also noticed that we had one listener from Sweden. We have reached Sweden. Sweden. Yes. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah. And our and our listenership in Australia has grown to 15. So Oh my goodness. Oh, can we, is that qualify as a can we do a trip to Australia to record the next podcast? I feel like that qualifies yeah i think we should be invited by whoever is involved in churches there to come and speak and uh we'll sit down and, and help you guys figure out how to how to create a great program for your churches there yeah i mean and even if you're not involved in church and you know whatever you do you work at that big opera house in sydney i mean invite us there i don't care let's just go <laughs> yeah as long as I can sit on the beach for a little bit, I'm good. I don't care where they work. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and we are going to have in the show notes today uh, a link to an email address that you can use. If you have uh, comments or feedback or ideas, uh, please email us, uh, and we would love to get in touch with you. So, we have a guest with us today, a friend of mine, Scott Spicer. Welcome, Scott. Hey, guys. Excited about the podcast, and thanks for having me on. Yes, thank you. I know that you're you're just from the United States, so and it's not quite like you're from Sweden or anything. But <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. I'll try to do better next time. <laughs> um, Scott, you and I um, met at uh, Northwest Bible Church here in Dallas, and um so why don't you tell everybody a little bit about uh, about what you're doing right now? Yeah, we met at Northwest Bible Church. I, I serve as the, the director of a recovery ministry there, which is just a volunteer role for me, but something that's really meaningful uh, to me and my wife and our ministry. Uh, you know, aside from that, in my day job, I, I serve as the director of mobilization for a global missions organization called East West. And so in that role, I just provide some leadership for the recruitment and training of missionaries that go reach unreached people groups around the world. And then uh, last kind of hat I wear right now is serving as a volunteer regional leader for a ministry 
called Pure Desire, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later on this call. Awesome, man. That, that sounds like three very important hats that you're wearing right now. I don't think I could wear that many hats. Important and a lot of fun, though. It's, I have a good time with all that. Yeah, you you are a passionate guy, and I, I really enjoy being around you. Uh, even when we got together to talk about potentially talking about this podcast, uh, our conversation was so good. I was like, I just wish we could have recorded this. That's all we needed. The espresso was strong that day, and I thought the same thing. I was like, man, we should have recorded this. Why do we even need to meet up next week? <laughs> There's no way that whatever we say today could be as good as that conversation. Yeah, I think you're right. So sorry. Yeah. Uh, oh wait, Kevin's here, so maybe it'll it'll be even better. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I I didn't I don't want to have to miss out on an awesome conversation. I'm praying that today is even better. So, and and I will say that just in the limited time that I've known Scott, I've already been inspired by some of the things he's told me. So I'm I'm looking forward to to hearing more of that story today. So Scott, um, how did you get involved in Christian leadership in the first place? Yeah, you know, I really came to start growing in my faith for the first time when I was a college student. Uh, I was a sophomore in college and got really involved in a college ministry there uh, who really helped me see what it meant to follow Jesus uh, in light of the kind of works-based cultural Christian background that I had. And so uh, after college, I actually made a decision to go into full-time ministry with that organization. And so what that meant is I raised support and moved to a new city and and spent my time investing in college students, uh, building relationships, sharing the gospel with them, seeking to help them grow spiritually and in leadership. And of course, uh, helping them navigate all the difficulties and awkwardness and complexities of being a college student today. And so it was a lot of fun. We got to go to a new city. We got to uh, experience and learn a new campus, build a lot of relationships, and it was just a fun, exciting time in our ministry. God was God was moving, things were happening, um, but but again, the reality at that time in my life, as I look back, was there was although things looked to be going pretty well on the outside, on the inside, below the surface, uh, certainly wasn't the case. Now you say we. Um, is that the, the ministry you're part of, or are you married at that point? Yeah, you know, I got married right before uh, starting that, that role. And so when I say we, I'm referring to my wife, Cassie. And so we've been married now for almost nine years, and we've got two little girls, and we're actually expecting our third this fall. And so uh, that'll be three kids in about four, four and a half years. And uh, some days, I, you guys know this with kids, but some days, what are we doing? You know, are we, did we make a mistake? Are we crazy? But we're excited too. And and, and uh, don't tell them, but kind of hoping for a boy. Well, the transition from two to three is a game changer because you're you're no longer a man-on-man defense. It's it's zone defense now. So get ready. I've got four, and we just we just leave them to themselves now. We don't even try <laughs> anymore. So. No, I'm kidding. It, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. So uh, that that's awesome that you guys are expecting another one. Man, parenting and raising toddlers is, I mean, one of the funnest seasons of life, I'm convinced. But man, it is, it is uh, a sacrifice like no other. And so draining. And so as you guys know, it's fun, but uh, and rewarding, but definitely hard work at the same time. I love how toddlers just have 
they have no concept of what is safe yet or not. And so, you know, they're just running around exploring the world. You know, you have to keep them from running in the street, keep them from pulling the knives out. You know, it's just one thing after another. Yeah, we we have definitely felt that sense of like, man, I love you so much. Like you, you know, your kids automatically get your love and they don't have to do anything to earn it. But if somebody had told me this is what it was going to be like, I'm like, I don't know, this, this is tough. It's a tough road. So all of you expecting parents out there, hope this has been really encouraging for you, but no, you you're shaped in ways though, when you have kids that, um, that you wouldn't be otherwise. And I think that's what makes it worth it. You, you learn a lot about your own selfishness and your own, you know, uh, lack of desire to sacrifice. And so, um, it's, it's great, but you're right. It is really hard. So I'm interested to hear more Scott about where things, um, turned for you guys as you were doing college ministry. Yeah. You know, as I said, Kevin, you know, at that time in my life, everything looked really good, uh, on the outside, meaning we were, I was a young visionary leader. We, we had a thriving ministry, really what looked like a thriving marriage. Uh, we were, we were doing marriage retreats, you know, annually, we were doing budget planning meetings monthly, going to, you know, doing all the right things that a young married Christian couple should be doing, um, doing everything that I thought uh, I should be doing. Um, but again, the reality was we came into those roles. We came into that marriage and that ministry as broken people. And there was a brokenness, uh, within us, uh, that I think we weren't aware of, that I wasn't aware of, but certainly was just having a weight on, on us and our lives and our marriage and a, and a cost to that. And, and as a result, as the pressure ramped up and life got busy and you, conflict comes in marriage, uh, the, that brokenness started to reveal itself in some ways. Um, and so for me, you know, I, I grew up in a home that um, was very loving and, uh, and, and still love and have a great relationship with my parents today. But the reality was my parents were young parents uh, when they had me and they were just striving to keep their head above water in their own lives. They were striving relationally, striving financially, struggling probably with some sin and some addictive behaviors of their own. And so as a result of being the oldest child in that home growing up, I've realized now I just had a blanket of, kind of insecurity that surrounded me, especially as I grew into adolescence, became older, just a blanket, just a weight, almost an oppression of insecurity over my life, uh, insecurity with me and who I was, insecurity financially uh, with, with, with some issues there, uh, insecurity spiritually, does God really care about me, what do I need to do to please this figure, and certainly just insecurity um, about some of the things I was struggling in. And so that, that, uh, that is what I brought with me into this new marriage and exciting ministry that started to rear its head later on. So you're, you're talking, Scott, about these insecurities that started to form in your childhood. Do you, did, you, did that slowly build in, in your life as a child? Did it, did it happen quickly? Do you, can you remember any of those pieces? You know, that's a good question, Paul. I look back at, at my life and there were, there's certain moments when I remember um, being fearful 
being insecure, being hurt by something. We moved around a lot when I was growing up. We moved around probably seven or eight times uh, by the time I hit high school. And so uh, with that, uh, you know, I remember a few moments where that hit me harder and where uh, I certainly was something to be struck by, by things ramped up in my life, fear ramped up in my life, being the new kid again in middle school. Uh, but but I, I think to answer your question, Paul, I think as I grew to be an adolescent, to become older, to become a teenager, I think I became more aware. I think I became more insecure just generally in my life. Social pressures ramped up. And I think, uh, and so I really would say, yeah, it was probably my 13, 14, 15, 16 year years that uh, I really see a lot of this, uh, certainly where the unhealthy habits in my life started, where it went from probably innocent boyhood and just being a kid, you know, uh, trying to survive in the world to being a young man, trying to find my way in the world and starting to lean into some unhealthy things that would end up impacting my life more than I ever could imagine. And I, I hear a lot of my story and yours about, you know, moving at different times, moving in middle school and that being the point of developing some of the unhealthy, um, both beliefs like core beliefs and then also uh, practices and, did uh, did you feel like you in in that period? Did you feel like you were trying to figure that out on your own, or were you in community at that point? And by in community, I mean, did you have support? Did you have relationships where you could have serious conversations? No, that's a good question, Paul. And and really, I love that question because that does dig right down to the depth of, I think, what I was experiencing. And that was feeling incredibly alone, incredibly alone in my struggles, incredibly alone in my fear and failure, and alone in my, in my shame. Uh, am I enough? Am I cool? Will I be included? Uh, does God approve of me? Do these cool kids at school approve of me? Uh, I was alone uh, in my mind and in my heart and all those feelings and all that busyness that was going on in me. And, and as I said earlier, I had young parents who were doing their best. Uh, I've really grown to have a lot of compassion and empathy for them, especially as I've learned their stories looking back, like, man, they have, they, they really did a lot to provide and bless me in ways that I'm really have found some gratitude for, which is good. But the reality is they, they, they weren't checking in with me. They weren't asking me, hey, how, how is this affecting you being at a new school? Or, hey, I saw you didn't make that team that you, you, we thought you would have made, but you kind of underperformed. Uh, what's going on there? How are you doing? Or, or the thought of counseling, the thought of talking or sharing. Um, that just wasn't my family culture. I had a counselor one time asking me to come up with my family's mission statement growing up. And I think that mission statement was to feel good and to look good to others. So, hey, what do we need to do to keep feeling good, to keep, keep it okay, keep it great, whether that's turn on the next ball game, grill out, have friends over, go on a cool vacation, feel good, and then look good to others? Uh, how do we present and perform in a way that people are going to say, hey, look at them. They're going great. They're fun. They're awesome. Uh, and certainly that meant not checking in and talking about the hard stuff. And so, yeah, I felt really alone with the hard stuff that I was dealing with. Man, I, I wonder how many people – if we could honestly look at, you know, what's, what's our family statement 
would say that we want to feel good and look good and we're doing whatever we can to present in that way. I just think that's just really insightful and to be able to identify that, um, I think is right on. Yeah. I mean, I totally identify with that. That, that completely resonates with me. And I was just sitting there thinking I can, I could probably name, you know, 10 people that would, that would join you in that. So you're, you're, you're preaching something that I think people are going to resonate with, but yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm interested to hear more. And that's some of the beautiful thing about community, which we'll get into. But when I started sharing my story with others and they said, Hey, are you reading my book? Cause you're just telling me about, you know, man, what healing and what growth uh, came from that. And so, yeah, I'm excited to share that with you as well. So you've kind of, you've set the stage a little bit about, you know, you've, you've grown up in this situation where you're really starting to struggle on your own. You've developed some different behaviors, um, which, you know, have, are going to play out later on. So let's jump back ahead. So you're, you're back to the young married, uh, Scott and Cassie college ministers, everything looks good. I mean, you're hosting, you said you're hosting marriage retreats, right? You know, attending marriage retreats, but yeah, but, but, but yeah, serving as influencers and leaders and topping on top, speaking on topics like ministry leadership and, and even, uh, uh, sexual health and purity and those kind of things too. I remember sitting on a panel with that. Um, so yeah, certainly uh, what you're describing. So what happens at that point? It seems like there was this internal pressure that was building that you said didn't match up to this. Everything looks good exterior of ministry. You know, when I was, the reality at that time was when I was a young married guy working in ministry, working hard, trying to look good and feel good, right? Like we've talked about, that's my MO. Um, I was emotionally unavailable, uh, emotionally dead, uh, just really not. Uh, I, had, I had a counselor say, hey, it's kind of like you're a human doing, not a human being. Uh, so just kind of living through life, going through the emotions. And so that, that certainly had a strain and an impact on work relationships and my marriage and even trying to connect with people I was ministering to. There's just a gap there. There was something missing. I saw other people experiencing things and having joy and, and unity and, and real compassion and empathy for people that we were working with. And I just I was just there doing going through the motions. There was something there that was off. So I, I kind of experienced that. Um, I had a lot of avoidance in my life at that time. Uh, avoidance, again, of anything hard, of anything that was uncomfortable, anything that was unexpected. That could be anything as silly as a, a speeding ticket that I shoved into the, the glove box and forgot about, you know, for three months or um, house repairs or the hard conversations with my wife looking at the budget. I just, I just avoided um, hard things in my life. Um, really, again, trying to do what I could to maintain calm and comfort in my life at that time. Scott, I'm curious, what about your relationships at this point, you know, in terms of people sharing your struggles and you sharing, you know, what's going on internally with others? What, what was that like? You know, relationships were really hard 
Kevin, like I said, I think on the outside, I'm an outgoing guy. I connect with people in, in a certain level initially. And so it can look like I'm really well connected and have a lot of relationships and have a lot of friends. But again, that aloneness that I felt when I was 13, 14, 15, just wanting someone to check in with me, wanting someone to know, wanting someone to care. As I'm 25 and surrounded by all these acquaintances, I really felt alone, very similar feeling. Because at that point, things were escalating in my life. And I had escalating sexual sin in my life that was only driving me deeper into hiding and in isolation, but yet at the same time longing for uh, and desiring for someone to come alongside me in this, for me not to be alone, for me not to be the only one that is still struggling with this behavior and really driving my marriage into the ground. So you're talking about not only just this avoidance of, of what's difficult or missing out on joy, which it sounds like even, even those things, it's not like you're sharing, Hey, I, I haven't been able to deal with the speeding ticket. I got, you know, like those are not things you're sharing either. But then on top of that, there's this sexual sin. And, and we've discussed how particular, particularly um, that can be extra shameful, even though we're in, in one sense, that can be something that we're, we're reaching out for intimacy um, through that behavior we are, we're missing it everywhere else. And because that's shameful, that creates even this more pressure to hide. Is that what you were feeling at that point? You know, absolutely. And the reality is we're sexual beings. Sexuality is a, is a big part of our lives. But the way I was treating sexuality was I was compartmentalizing it in my life. I was hiding it. I was stigmatizing it. I was uh, certainly not uh, open with it and sharing it and and learning about it or talking or, or even being close with my wife. I had made sexuality a secret, dark, hidden thing in the corner of my life. The worst part about me, because that's what it had become from my first sexual experiences when I was 13. Again, just trying to trying to uh, survive and escape and feel good in this in this hurting world. And so when I was 13, 14, I found I like to say I found a drug that was free, it was accessible, I could get it at any time. It was completely hidden, no one had to know about it. There's no signs of me using this drug and it was really, really good and effective at making me escape my problems. And so I took that drug with me and so that really made sexuality, made that my sexuality, a hidden drug, a hidden secret. Um, and, and I didn't realize this until later, but truly it was something that um, was an escalating addictive behavior in my life. Anytime something hard came, anytime the pressure ramped up, or even anytime people wanted to connect with me emotionally, connect with me relationally, I went back to that drug that was, that was hidden, that was in the corner, that was there for me at that point for 10, 12 years, uh, where we are in the story. You know, Kevin, I think you mentioned this a couple podcasts ago, but, um, sexual behavior, whether we're talking pornography or other, or, you know, fantasy and, or other forms of kind of acting out sexually uh, has the sorts of addictive components that you get with hard drugs. Like it's, it's that addictive. Um, it, is that, uh, can you say that again for us? 
Yeah. So um, when they do fMRI scans of people's brains, when they're looking at pornography, it mimics what happens in somebody's brain when they take a hit of cocaine. Wow. wow. So it, it's, it, it's equally impactful on the brain um, in terms of the neurotransmitters that are released which is why it's so addictive. And it also wears out the pleasure center of the brain that where dopamine hits just like cocaine or other drugs would as well, which, which is what creates that tolerance and that desire for more. So an escalating level for that sort of problem and addiction. And Kevin, that's, that's such my experience when you said that, that, you know, the things that I was looking at and going to when I was 13, 14 changed when I was 18, 19 and got my first iPhone. And then as I became a 22, 23, 24 year old male, uh, or adult, I mean, and uh, all of a sudden my iPhone uh, no longer uh, was enough of a hit. And I started moving and escalating from online, uh, strictly online pornography behavior to say, hey, how can I get more of a high, more of a hit, uh, more arousal and excitement, uh, because uh, it certainly isn't enough. So thanks for saying that. I really relate with that in my story. Absolutely. I mean, that's where a lot of people don't recognize um, how impactful pornography can be because they don't understand what it's doing to the brain. It just feels like a moral failure over and over again, instead of there being an actual like physical, physically addictive component to it that doesn't have the same type of um, withdrawal effects that you would if you took a hardcore drug. So it just makes it feel even more shameful. And you know what, what that makes me think is I was, I was really stopped in my tracks at age 25, my third year of marriage um, in, in this addictive behavior, God just intervened and allowed me to be exposed but it had escalated so much in the 10 to 12 years so far that I even think, man, I'm 32 now. Where would I be now if, if that had, hadn't stopped? Where would I be when I was 52? Um, what, how, how far could that have gone? Sometimes in the work that I do, I see people who, who have gotten caught up in really um, addictive uh, and, and, and destructive behaviors in their life. And it's easy to say, wow, man, how did they, how did they get it? that bad or how, how how do they allow that to happen i don't think i'd ever be capable of doing something like that but if i'm honest when i look at the trajectory of where i was headed after 12 years of just non-stop hidden addiction man i i could see myself or there's no reason why i wouldn't be right where those guys are in their 40s 50s 60s 70s and so it certainly gives me an empathy and an understanding of of, of how people end up in these situations that's really insightful scott i i think it it's a reminder of why it can be so important to start to do the sorts of internal work and find the community that we're talking about at, at a young age and you know for people that hear your story i you know i think we're gonna we're gonna share some more later on and encourage them but how important it is to begin that work as early as possible but i i want to go back to the point in your story where you mentioned some sort of exposure. So again, setting the stage, everything looks great on the outside. I mean, you, you and, and your wife are leading and uh, things look good and feel good. Uh, but internally you've, you've expressed all this 
turmoil and addiction. And so what does that exposure point look like? You know, I got an email one day and it was an email from a high ranking authority, I guess, at this campus that we were working on. So it wasn't a direct boss, but certainly someone that we knew and uh, indirectly reported to as a part of that campus organization. I got an email saying, hey, can you come meet me in the office? I'd love to talk to you about something. And, and again, I was in such a state of denial. And so, and, and, and I just, I laughed when I look back at where I was. And I honestly thought, man, maybe they're, I wonder why they're wanting to meet with me. She must be wanting to ask me, what are our tips? What are our tricks? Can we help someone else out? Because we're having such success. Or maybe she wants me to speak or to, to emcee an event on campus. Uh, this could be exciting. I wonder what this is about. And I got to her office. And the minute I saw her face and she says, thanks for coming here today. And then she said these words that were so chilling and they still are today. She said, I wish we were meeting under better circumstances. And she shut the door behind me. And when she said that, the hair on my neck rose. And all of a sudden I thought, there's no way. There's no way this is happening right now. It was like a bad dream. There's no way that this conversation, that this reality, this thing that I've been stuffing, this thing that I've been hiding, this thing that I hadn't been talking about, this person at this university is, is bringing me in to talk about this. How, how, did they, how did this even happen? How did I end up here? How did, how did this get to my workplace? I was always very secure and sure to do everything I could to keep this hidden. How in the world am I here? And so over the next hour, I would learn that truly through a, 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 an, an instance of God's provision, just his sovereignty, what only he could orchestrate. I'd, I'd been exposed in an instance of an appropriate online conversation that had circled back to this individual. And it was just an instance, like I said, um, what they didn't know at that time was that instance was just one part of really a 12 year addictive uh, struggle. And, and that instance was just a midpoint of things that had happened before and after that. Um, but over that next hour, all that would start to be unraveled. And I'd start to come to grips with, I can't believe this is happening. My boss would immediately get involved. He showed up in the room about 30 minutes later. That afternoon, uh, I shared with my wife, uh, again, this instance that I had been exposed. And at that point, I got home that afternoon guys. And I remember sitting in my living room and just felt a fear in my gut that I've never felt before. Again, this is, is this really happening? And this is such a nightmare. These are things that I never thought I would share that are, that, you know, I take to my grave that are, that are now uh, conversation in a room. And I remember sitting there and thinking, what do I do? And I kind of had a crossroads. I really did. Because again, we were just talking about an instance at that point an instance of an online conversation. And I thought, okay, I can, I can scramble. I can cover this up. I can, I can justify and explain this. And this is a one-time deal. This is a, this is a slip. This is a, I'm sorry that, you know, won't ever happen again. But then I had this moment on my couch where I somehow had this realization that God has to be doing something huge here. There is no way that this could have happened any other way. Why is God intervening in my life right now? What is, what is he possibly calling me into? And the reality is I had prayed so many times over the last 12 years. God, this, God, take this away from me. This is the last time. Every time was the last time. 
And I was, and I, and there was a real part of me that hated the sin. There was a real part of me that was disgusted and shameful of, of the, the betrayal that I had done in my marriage. And, and the fact that I couldn't make the last time, the last time that I ultimately kept going back to those same behaviors and even worse than they were before. And so there was a moment in there where I saw a little bit of hope and I had a little bit of curiosity. What could God be doing right now? And at that crossroads of, do I cover up this instance or do I go all in with what God's doing right now? Scott, as you were sharing the first part of that story, so you said the hair on your neck stood up and you still feel it. And yeah, mine was too. When you, when you said, uh, she said to you, I wish we were meeting under better circumstances and that fear of, oh no, that like something, something is being exposed like that. And I think whatever people have struggled with in this life, there was some podcast I think I was listening to where it's like, there was a, uh, some message sent to, uh, some, to, to a, a group of people that said, um, everything has been, has every, everything has been exposed, you know, flee the country immediately. And they didn't have anything tied to that, but just that message alone was enough to like have these people just leave the country They whatever it was in their life that they didn't want exposed, they were going to get out of there. Um, and I just think people can identify with that feeling. And then also with the feeling of praying and asking God to take something out of your life over and over again and just say, get, feel desperate for that. But then to also have this fear, at least I've, when I've prayed that I've, I've meant it, but I've also had a fear of, okay, what is that? Gonna, what is that going to take? What's the cost going to be? And so mm-hmm. you're facing this fear around whatever this cost is going to be in that mm-hmm. moment. But it sounds like there's this also, there's this sense of hope that, I wonder if God is active in this as well. That's so, that's so right. I was caught in this place between, again, fear of what, it all, what does this mean for me? What is this going to lead to? This unraveling, this uncovering. But then you're right, a hope and almost a comfort and a courage to say, to lean in, to say, but I can do this. Um, if, if this is something that God's doing in my life, then I don't know what it's going to look like, but I can take the next step. What is the next step? And so, so that's it. I won't say that I had it all figured out. And in fact, there was a million steps that happened in the next 30 days and the next 90 days. Now, still seven years later, I'm still taking the next step. But I think I had it in that moment, I was deciding, am I going to take that first step to move in alignment with what God's doing knowing that I think that's where freedom is. I I think that's where what I've been praying, I think that's where that goes, although it's really hard and painful. And I don't even want to think about, I think that's where I want to go. Can I take that first step? And so that's, that's the place I was in, in, uh, in where God had me that, that afternoon. Scott, just one clarifying question. Um, This, this administrator that called you in their office was this person a, a believer or non-believer? You know, just, I'm just trying to, I want to, I want our audience to kind of understand the gravity of this situation. So you're walking into to somebody's office that is an administrator and is, is telling you, and it's a woman as well, from what you just said. Um, and this sexual 
um, the sexual issues coming up and she's bringing it to you, you know, what, can you talk just a little bit about what's swirling around that whole situation that makes it as, as impactful as it was for you? You know, she, she was the believer, Kevin. Uh, she was actually the chaplain for the university uh, that we were working at, uh, which was not a, a, any, by any means, a, a Christian or religious university. So she was probably one of the only believers on staff of that uh, in the administration of the university. But what I felt again was just, I felt so exposed. I felt so bare. I had done so much in, in any relationship I was in in my life to look impressive, to get respect, to get admiration, to be a leader. That, that I'd done that my whole life. I'd done that certainly even as I grew in college and after college professionally, I started to become really good at that. I started to be given leadership roles and given opportunities. And so everything I had was on that. I remember in that room, Kevin, feeling so bare. There's this woman that I, man, I wanted her to respect me. I wanted her to, to be impressed by me. I wanted her to say, man, what a great guy. What a great leader. What a blessing to our university. And as I realized that all my efforts to look that way had been exposed and revealed and laid bare that that's the best way I can describe it for you uh that's the that's the situation I was in it was a it was a place of shame and a place of fear that uh, I had never been in my life I never allowed myself to go to that place and suddenly I was there uh not not under my own doing and what was the fallout of that you know after all this comes out even you know, I know you have this internal resolve to go and, and kind of lay, lay bare everything that's been going on. But what about the fallout with the students that you were involved with and your supporters, all the people that were in, involved in this whole thing? Yeah, you know, like as I mentioned initially, we were just talking about an instance. And that instance was of online, inappropriate online activity or conversation was was I think in isolation, I, I could have moved past, to be honest. Uh, I could have kept my job and, and kind of polished it over. Um, uh, and, and, and I think if that alone was what we were talking about, I think, there, I think the fallout would have been pretty manageable, pretty reasonable. But the rowdy in my case was, like, as I mentioned, there was a thousand of these instances in my story over the last 12 years and escalating behavior again that had moved beyond uh, just strictly online pornography and so uh, as I was in that crossroads and I mentioned taking the first step uh, both the university and the ministry that I was working with uh, were, were certainly had an interest of, of, of hey how do, let's get some outside help let's learn more about what's going on here. Let's get, we've never dealt with something like this. So let's get someone else involved that can maybe help facilitate this process. And it was through that, that I got connected to the ministry of peer desire and their founder, Dr. Ted Roberts. And, um, and it was through that connection, that introduction, actually the next day, um, as I was still considering what is my next step that really I got connected with Dr. Ted Roberts, who would end up being my counselor, my wife for the next year. And, and really, he laid out a path for me. He laid out what that next step was. And that next step was submitting to a process of disclosure, to really looking at not just this instance, but 
opening up to say, hey, what, what, what's the reality of, of, of what's going on? Not just my three years of marriage, not just my years of following Christ or being in ministry. No, really my life. What does this look like in my life? Where is this addiction taking me? And really pursuing reality at all costs, because that's where true healing and freedom is going to come from. It's going to have to be down that path. And so uh, Dr. Uh, Ted facilitated a process of disclosure between me and my wife. And in that disclosure, uh, I really shared the reality of my 12-year uh, addictive struggle and, the, and how far that had gone in different contexts. And so as a result of that, uh, it was really determined. And at that point, I think we were we were on board too, but we couldn't continue in the roles we were in in ministry. We, we couldn't keep working on campus. We couldn't keep investing in students that we had such trauma. My wife had such trauma in her life. We had such trauma and damage just in, in, in chaos in our current life that we needed a season to, to heal, to connect, to figure out what's going on, just to let, let the dust settle, but also a, seri- a season of, of serious recovery, serious counseling, um, that the work was really just getting started, but the work wasn't with other people. The work was with me. The work was with my wife and with our marriage. Scott, um, as I think about you going through this disclosure, uh, with, with Dr. Roberts and then sharing with your wife about that, I think about people that, um, that may have something in their life that they feel like, yeah, I, I, I want to take the next courageous step towards health and healing, uh, but I'm scared of what that means in my significant relationship with my wife, with my husband. Um, what, what was that like for you? What was it like for Cassie? How did, how did it hit your marriage? You know, it, it, was, it was painful. There's no, there's no way to minimize it. It was painful. It was shocking. It was traumatic. Um, there was emotions of of grief, emotions of anger, emotions of just uh, c- confusion. I remember my wife saying, uh, "Because again, I was so good and and so specific about hiding all this." That she said, well, "How how is this possible? How did I miss this?" Uh, are you not the man that I thought I married? Uh, and so the, the, there were, there were hard conversations. There were hard, um, just realities that we had to discuss, but in the midst of that, I don't want to shy away from God had surrounded us with people in relationships and that cared that understood that had even been there themselves and without those people in our lives in that season, we wouldn't have made it. I can tell you right now, without the professional clinicians that were involved, that, that brought a, a professionalism and excellence, a, a, an expertise in this, that brought vision, brought hope, um, brought guidance, but also the people that we linked arms with, actually with other couples, with other men and women who were in a similar season and, and building those relationships with people who who were right we were, or maybe a couple of steps ahead. They said, hey, two years ago, man, we were right there. And, and that was so important for me, Paul, because again, I was so isolated. But man, when this happened, I was isolated more than I even thought possible. I was so alienated because suddenly I wasn't the, just the guy secretly struggling. I was the guy openly that had failed 
and lost my job, lost so much of my natural community, had to, had to inform our financial supporters what happened. I had to tell our family why we suddenly were changing jobs. Uh, and so how alienated and isolated was I, not just in, in, internally, emotionally, but now actually physically, literally physically, my job, my community, my friends were gone. And, and so these relationships that God provided, this community of people who shared our story, shared our language, shared the trajectory we were on, man, that, that provided such hope and healing in that season, that first 30 days, 60 days, six months. Uh, it was so key for us. It's interesting that you you feared or you were alone in your struggle. And Kevin's talked about how fear and anxiety in particular are often the the root or the, the deepest part of that fear is that we will struggle, we'll be alone if we in whatever we're gonna face, that we're gonna end up alone. And what I'm hearing is in some sense you did lose a lot. There was a whole lot of loss through that process, but then you found out that you were gaining support. You were gaining relationships that you really, you could not have made it without those people. And just to jump ahead for a second, how, how would you describe you and Cassie's relationship now? Uh, is it six, seven years since that's happened? Five years? Yeah, almost seven years. You're so right. Uh, I love that insight from Kevin that I think the fear is being alone. But you're right, just to circle back on that, I never felt more connected and cared for and seen than I was in that first 30, 60, 90 days. Because the, the, cause the level that I was connecting was so intimate and so deep and so real, so authentic. It was the real me. And I had never peeled back the real me for people. And so it was a special time, right? I established some really significant relationships that are still there today. And so as I think about that, yeah, I've never been so not alone as I was in that disclosure season. You know, Scott, uh, one thing that I found really helpful, it comes from Timothy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. He, he says some version of this, but I've kind of adapted it to... Um, to be helpful in framing kind of what our core struggle is. And the, the thing that I think we're all asking is if you really knew me, would you love me and accept me? If you really knew all of it, all of the stuff that I've hidden. And I think our greatest fear is that the answer is going to be no, that somebody's going to look back at us and say, I don't accept you or love you. But the deepest longing of our heart is to hear a yes. And it seems like you finally started getting those yeses along the way as you started the disclosure process. And I think there's something really beautiful to that. Absolutely. And, you know, Paul asked about my marriage and my relationship with my wife. And to give you guys a quick illustration of that, I started doing counseling with, with Dr. Ted and Pure Desire and I remember one of the early exercises we did was I listed out actually the top 10 most painful moments of my life. And for a guy whose mission at that point was to feel good and to look good, I didn't know where to start. I was like, uh, let's see, Chick-fil-A was closed last Sunday. That was pretty painful. Uh, no, sorry to those in Australia, you're missing out if you don't know what Chick-fil-A is. But uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and so long story short, I went through this process and, and, and really faced and just wrote down the, the headings of incident instances that had happened that were hard and painful and, and things that I had minimized or overlooked or said that wasn't a big deal. But if I'm, if I'm true, it's some of these milestones in my life where yeah, it was hard and I was insecure and I was scared and my parents were struggling and, 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 and whatnot. And I sat down with my wife after I completed that exercise and, and she, she, it wasn't part of it, but she was like, we were connecting on the work I was doing and I told her about the exercise and she said, Oh, can I, can I see them? Can I hear about them? And I showed her my list of 10 things. We met in high school. We met when we were 16 years old. So we'd known each other for 10 years at this point. We've been married for three. Uh, she was the person that knew me and I knew her more than anyone else in the world at this point. And I sat down with her and showed her this list of 10 things and nine of the 10 things she had never heard about in her, whole, in her life. She did not know about me. And these are the top 10 most painful moments in my life. These are the moments in my life that were probably some of the most significant, the most formative, certainly the most raw and real and authentic, and probably some of the moments that were having the most impact on who I was today, on who I was in our marriage, and on who she experienced me to be on a daily basis. And she had no idea of nine out of the 10 things on that list. And so I, I share that as a picture, as an illustration of kind of work that we did and the kind of connection that we started establishing that as I look today and you ask me, Hey, what's life like today? It, it's, it's indescribable in, in comparison to where it was. I thought that we were connected. I thought that she thought she knew me. I thought I knew her. We thought we were living these significant deep lives. Um, but it was shallow. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was so hidden. And so, uh, just shallow is the word I would use, just, just our connection. And so now, seven years of that type of work, we experience a connection and intimacy in our marriage and authenticity that is indescribable of anything that I ever even knew was possible beforehand. And Scott, when you share that, first, that's amazing that nine out of the 10 worst moments in your life, she knew nothing about. But I'm just thinking that it wasn't like if we could have asked you at that point, does Cassie know you really well? You would have said, yeah, of course she knows me. She knows me better than anybody else. So then there's this discrepancy of there's all these parts of you that that are not known yet. And I'm just thinking it's probably because you were not wrecking. You either have blocked that out. You were not paying attention to it. And so this was not just you hiding. It was you having full, so fully put on this this mask of life is this and it feels good that you're not even aware that you're hiding this part of yourself from her right you know absolutely I, I was I was completely unaware of of these of the significance of these instances in my past but also how connected they were to the roots of my addictive behavior and so I prayed that prayer so many times God take this away the last time is the last time. I hated the sin, but how in the world was I ever going to get it free if I didn't have an understanding, a coherent narrative of how I got there in the first place, of the pain and the insecurity and the shame and the fear that was driving me to cope and escape with pornography and other sexually addictive behavior? How was I ever going to stop that if I didn't understand uh, where that was coming from? 
And so uh, that, that was huge for me and a big part of my breakthrough and, 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 and uh, really the journey of healing that I still continue today, a journey of recovery. So if there are people that are listening and whether or not you can identify with exactly what Scott's gone through or not, but you th- feel like I would like to be known the way he's describing being known. I'd like to be able to bring my life in, in, into cohesion, into, uh, into the light and, and feel like I, I know myself uh, like he's describing. How do you encourage people now, Scott, to begin that journey? I, th- I think it all starts in taking that next step. Uh, and, and, uh, and really that starts with community. That starts with relationships. Uh, my counselor said that we were, we were wounded or hurt in our lives in the context of relationships. And so as a result, healing must come in the context of relationships. It can't come any other way. It can't come with us alone uh, with our willpower. It can't come with us in our minds trying to do better uh, or, or modify our behavior. And I, and I tried so many times. So no one has to know about this, but, but I'm going to really get it this time. Healing has to come in the context of relationships because we were hurt in relationships. We were hurt by others and brokenness in this world. And so community for me, that sense of connecting with others and digging into the, to the realities of my life and digging into the messiness That can look like joining a group, a like-minded group of people. That was huge for me. Um, There's so many recovery or counseling or process groups like you're leading, Paul, uh, that are so, uh, so significant for people. I mean, the kind of things that happen there, I couldn't think of a better use of your time. So I think getting in a group, pursuing some type of group or community where people are on a similar trajectory or trying to achieve a similar goal it's the number one thing I think is, is for taking the next step. Scott, that is so well said. And um, it sounds like you, you know, you got to be with somebody who was very wise uh, through that journey. And, and I just, I want to underscore this idea that healing takes place in the context of relationship. That's something Paul and I have discussed on here. And I, I don't want us to, to just skip over that too quickly because I look at your story and it clearly illustrates the fact that we, we are not created to be alone, but so often we're sitting in this place of hiding thinking, I'm the only one that's like this. I'm the only one who is living this kind of life right now. And because of that, it can't be known. It's not just that I don't want it to be. It's just that it can't be because there's nobody like me. And so when you put yourself in a group of people who look back at you and say, no, I've been down a very similar road. All of a sudden you find this place of connection, not just that, oh, there's somebody as screwed up as me, but there's somebody that walked this journey and they're on a, they're in a different place with their journey. And it gives me hope that not only am I not alone and not the only one, but actually people have done the work to get to a better place. And the process of getting to a better place is being more fully known. And that's where true healing and freedom comes from. And I love that that, that shows up so brightly in your, in your uh, story here. Yeah, that's so well said, Kevin. And when I think about the type of connection I'm talking about, it's exactly that. It's, it's those things in my life. 
it's those nine other items on my list, right? It's not me connecting with guys about college football or about what me and my wife did on our date last night or the kind of things. I've been in those communities too. Those communities are all around us. Those are a lot of our friend circles. Those are all of us at our child birthday parties on the weekends that we go to. I don't know about you, but we've got like multiple a month, it feels like now. Uh, those are us in our, even our small groups at church so often. Um, hey, what is home, what, what, what home projects you working on lately, right? What, what's the, what, what, what kind of grass do you have and how are you, how are you getting grass to grow that shape? I mean, there's so many things we can talk about and have connection and have community, but for me, and I was good at that. I was doing that and doing it well, uh, but inwardly struggling, inwardly alone. It's the nine things on my list that as I shared that and experienced those things with my wife, but now also to experience that community with other people that guess what? They have their own list and they're like, whoa, you're nine, seven of those are on my list. And he's got four of, of mine too. And, we all, and suddenly you realize exactly that. There's, there's not something uniquely wrong with me. There's not something uniquely uh, inherently bad or, or, or shameful that I've done or that I've been through. Again, no, this is, this is the reality of, of, of life. This is reality of us people. This is reality of sin and brokenness. Um, but we weren't meant to do that alone. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a a really interesting thing that's kind of uh, bubbled up in the mental health world, and that is the the idea that we've got to stop asking the question "What's wrong with you?" and start asking the question "What's happened to you?" Because so often, what prevents us from being open and, and sharing those deeper places of vulnerability is that we're looking at ourselves, asking that question, what is wrong with you? Why do you keep doing this? You know, last time was supposed to be the last time. And all of a sudden here we are again, what is wrong with you? And, and we're afraid that that's going to be the response from others. And, and sometimes it actually is too often in the church. That's where people go. But when we get past the, the behaviors that we're so ashamed of and, and we, can, we can let people in on that, but we move towards the, this is what happened to me. These are the 10 things on my list that make all of these things that you're seeing make sense. We don't just make sense to ourselves, but we start to make sense to other people. And when we see that there's something truly healing that happens in relationship where it's like, we move deeper past the shame into the pain. And when we can touch the pain, that's where real healing starts to take place and new perspective gets placed on it. When we see other people and hear other people talk about it. And that, that's the hardest work. You know, it's always easier to read the book, to, to go to the weekend conference, to memorize a verse. Um, and, and these surface level, symptomatic treatments it, it, here in texas we've got crawl spaces under our house our, our houses are all built on pier and beam not foundations and so crawl space houses sometimes that need foundation work because things can shift and need to be re-leveled out and so you can get these cracks in your walls the corners and these cracks anytime you see a crack it's so easy to go get the the putty or the spackling to kind of fill it in a little bit with your fingertip and to get paint you can you can in 10 minutes of work look like it was never there. You can have people over at your house that weekend, have a, have a Super Bowl party at your house, have your cracks all, and, and it looks great. 
But then six months later, the crack's going to come back and it might be a little wider, a little longer. And then you can putty it again. And then three months later, how faster this time? Whoa, the crack's there. No, oh, there's a crack on the other side of the wall too. The cracks keep escalating. These symptoms keep escalating. And the hardest thing to do is to grow into the crawl space of your house because it's small, it's dirty, it's dark. There's like scary bugs down there and maybe some squirrels or rat. I mean, literally crawling hands and knees, the military style in this dark, wet, damp part underneath your house is the worst thing you could do, but that's the only way to stop those cracks from coming back. And sometimes it's not even that big of a fix. Sometimes it's uh, just a little shim or to, or to re-level something that, to solve everything, but you got to go in the crawl space. You got to be willing to get dirty and to do the hard work and stop just fixing up the cracks. If you want to find true healing and to fix the problem. And so that's that illustration came to me a while ago, and it's so real in my life. Again, as we talked about avoidance in the past and some of these things that and it's so easy, even with, with sexual sin in our life, for a long time, I puttied the cracks. A long time, I, I, I did what I call behavior modification, just trying to try harder. And it wasn't until I got introduced to Pure Desire Ministries and their counseling and their resources and their groups that took me on a different path. Again, what you're saying, Kevin, not what what's wrong with you? What's the sin? What's the symptom? How do we fix that? How do we stop doing that? No, they were like, what happened? Because where is this coming from? Let's, let's go 15 years in the past, 10 years in the past. What are the, what are the, the, the lies you're believing about yourself? The, 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 the pieces of shame that you're carrying with you, the oppression that is leading you to continue coping, continue going back to these destructive behaviors that you, that you hate. And we believe you hate They're causing pain in your life, but you keep going back. Why? What's in your past that's driving you there? And so um, I love I love that illustration. And it always helps me understand that really well. I love that too, Scott. And it actually brings back um, a very scary memory of fixing a house with my dad, flipping a house and crawling in the crawl space and seeing these huge six-inch insects uh, that terrified me. But um, that it... it that analogy is so good because it, it, it shows how to really get to the root. You have to go through something so unpleasant. And I feel like, I mean, that opens up a whole conversation that I think I would love to have uh, more conversation about with you. Maybe there's, there's, there'll be another time where we could um, invite you back and just to talk more about that process, because I think, that would really be beneficial to explore, you know, what does it look like to crawl down, down into those dark spaces and do that hard work? Because um, that's, that's a part of your story that, uh, that now, you know, I, I know you and I see all that God has done in the past seven years and it's, it's amazing, but it's been because you've crawled in that space and, and done that work and you've done it with support. And I just, uh, I, I think that would be really good to to share and discuss more. So maybe we'll have a chance to do that. But for now, I just want to say thanks. Thank you for sharing your story and being vulnerable and sharing it with our audience as well. Absolutely, Scott. This has been so awesome and, and good for me too, you know, just on a personal level to hear your story. And man, I can't thank you enough for the courage that it takes to be as transparent as you are. And I know that you found a lot of healing by, by doing that, but it's so rare. It's just so rare for people to, to do that. And, um, 
And that's one of the reasons why Paul and I were passionate about starting the podcast is to give people a platform who have that courage to share so that others don't have to feel alone. Cause that's our ultimate goal is we just don't want anybody to feel alone, you know? And so I, I know that this story is going to have a major impact on a lot of people. Well, thanks guys for having me on. And, and every time I get to, to share my story and share what God's done and share this trajectory I'm on, it, it's, it's, it's healing for me. You know, it, it continues to reaffirm in me that I'm not alone and reaffirm in me that, um, there is such freedom and health to be had in community. And so it's, it's a privilege for me to share with you guys. It's going to be the highlight of my week for sure. And so appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. Thanks Absolutely. again, Scott. And, uh, I just, as we wrap up, just, I'm thankful that God is a God that pursues us, that God found you in that moment and gave you enough faith to say, okay, this is a step that I can take and leading us into community. I just want to as we talk about how we are finding this healing and community, let's just highlight how beautiful it is that this is how God has designed us and that God is pursuing us so that we can find that healing. Yeah. You know, I'll end with this story. Um, It's found in Luke seven verses 36 through the end of the chapter. And it's, it's the woman that comes in and, and she cries on Jesus's feet and, and dries his feet with her hair you know, there, that would have been such a impactful moment to so many in a lot of different ways, not just positively, you know, because like during that time, a meeting with a Pharisee and a rabbi, an up and coming rabbi uh, that everybody wants to hear from, what people from the community would have come from all over to listen to this. So this, the, the crowd that she walks through is a huge crowd who are going to sit there and listen to Jesus and this Pharisee debate the great theological things of the day. And this is this Pharisee's moment. It's his moment and she steals it, you know? And what's so interesting is that when this happens, Jesus, he, he says to, he says to Simon, the Pharisee, while looking at the woman and don't let this get lost, you know, he's looking her in the eyes and he's talking to Simon and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And the implication there is he's telling her, I see you, you know, everybody else sees a prostitute and an unclean person. And this Pharisee whose house we're at sees someone who's ruining his party but I see you, I see what's deeper beyond all of that. And it changes her life forever. You know, being seen is something that we all deeply need and not just seen for the sin that we're involved in, but seen for the deeper part of who we are. And I think that's what your story illustrates, you know, that when you're finally seen, healing comes in in a really profound way. So. Thank you for illustrating that, Scott. And I want to thank everybody for listening today. I pray that this has been helpful for you. And I pray that you'll find ways out of the darkness, out of the shadow, and that this story will encourage you to do so. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. And uh, thank you, Scott. Yeah. Thanks again, guys.
thanks for joining us today in episode six of Created for Connection. We're thankful for Scott and his willingness to share his story, and we pray that it blesses you and opens the door to see places where you can step out of the shadows and into the light. Special thanks to Cheyenne Metters, who created our music for this podcast. And we want to thank all of our listeners who have shown us so much support over the last two months. We pray that you will continue to share this so that we can get it into the hands of people who feel like their only option is hiding. Because we want everyone to remember, you are not alone.